0: Yeah, Woo. that's awesome. <laughs> Look, guys, I know it's Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day, RUF. Welcome to the holiday with I- impossible expectations. Thank you, Hallmark. Um, I don't know if you saw the most recent edition of the Roundup newspaper, um, but I guess that RUF asked me to be valentine? You guys' is valentine? <laughs> Say, Druid, will you be our valentine? Love, RUF. I don't know if you saw this. <laughs> and my answer is yes. <laughs> so can someone dim the lights? Somebody <laughs> Cue the awkward slow dance music. I'm ready to sway back and forth and look awkwardly over the shoulder of RUF. <laughs> oh, this is great. I'm kidding. Sort of. of. Okay. Uh, For those who don't know me, and you're about to leave, um, (laughs) I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF Reform University Fellowship, is what that stands for, at New Mexico State University. We're a Christian campus ministry. Let me tell you a little bit about what we do and who we are. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the pretty and pink and the brooding and black. For the perfect couple who buys everything in doubles and the couple who fights so much that they are a walking, talking, pay-per-view event. <laughs> for the single by heartbreak and the single by choice. <laughs> and our ethics exists for those of you who think that Jesus is the lover of your soul and for those of you who think that Jesus loving you in that way feels uncomfortable. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks for coming, we hope you feel welcome. Welcome now. Um, we appreciate you coming, and if you've been around REF you for a while, I say this every week now, but maybe afterwards, not now, get to know somebody that's new or someone that you don't know well. Um, reintroduce yourself, risk an awkward misname there. Hey, you, what's your name? Um, and then if you're new, Thanks for coming. Especially, Uh, this is your chance to relax. Um, Maybe someone comes to you and talk to you. And if you if you'd like, go and meet a few folks. Uh, Everyone's nice, uh, for the most part. (laughs) Have to say that, don't you? Um, R F. Sign up. Is there the clipboard? Here, I'll grab it. Oh, look, no front row. This is awesome. (laughs) I can spit all I want. Um, Um, Shampoo. Robo. Anyway, so I'm passing the sign-up, and then also there's a Facebook group, app. This is a great way to get better informed. Don't sign up if you've already signed up, please. Uh, otherwise, you'll get more than one email. Um, but it's a great way to get connected and know what we're doing, um, the details in guys' nights, girls' nights, all the other fun stuff that we do uh, for a living. Um, and we're glad uh, that you're here and I'm going to encourage you to take the next step which, which is get involved in a small group Bible study there are a lot of options on your bulletin and uh, and we just got started we've only been doing it a couple weeks so you can jump into any of those studies comfortably um, RUF we believe in knowing Jesus and knowing each other and we think that those things happen well together and we think that a small group Bible study is the perfect avenue to know each other to know Jesus better so welcome to that. Finally, finally, in honor of impossible romantic expectations on Valentine's Day, RF is holding separate guys and girls nights. <laughs> 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 recovery, recovery. Um, the guys are calling our nights white shirts, white shirts, wings, and what poker. Um, well, poker is just poker with a W, Just for the record, <laughs> it's cool. Um, this is going to happen Saturday at 7 p.m., and we're going to meet at Wingstop on the corner of Missouri and Solano and Solano Square at, at 7. And really, here's, like, I was really lenient last year, and just, grace does not abound in terms of white shirts wings and what poker. Um You definitely need to wear a white shirt, um, and if you don't, that's okay, but you definitely do. <laughs> uh, and you should bring extras. I'll bring extras. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a great idea, Jen. So, look, no boneless wings. A lot of people weaseled out last year doing that. Um, don't You cannot use utensils. Okay, so that happened last year as well. Very disappointing. Um, you, and you have no use of a napkin. You have to use your white shirt as your napkin. That is the beauty of the guys' night And then, once you look like you killed something, uh, you go and play poker. And everyone, by the way, no one is a card shark in RUF, so everyone's terrible at poker. So it's just a fun time of being humiliated together. Um, so... Need I say any more? Okay. Let me talk a little bit about the girls' night, okay? To <laughs> kind of be fair here, uh, PJs, pictures, and ice cream. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, I really liked the first one. What was that? Sexy Spartans or something? <laughs> 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 uh, they were like 300 together. Um, but anyway, uh, the girls are going to meet at Saturday at Jen's house. You saw the details in the slide, 7.30. Uh, there's details in the bulletin. And look, I mean, doesn't PJ's pictures and ice cream say it all, really? I want to put Caliche's, that's what I really want to. Uh, pa, frozen custard. <laughs> See, like this is the beauty of just using three letters in a row. You can do whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna put this away, not that I don't care about RUF and your, and your incredible balance to me. Um, this semester in large degree, what we're doing here, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians That's the book of Colossians in the Bible. Uh, Here's my best attempt at a a title for our study, and some of you have heard this a couple times. What if enough was enough? How Jesus is all we ever really needed and wanted anyway. So what if enough was enough? How Jesus is all we ever really needed and wanted anyway. Our passage tonight is going to look a lot at what that, that title means. But I also want um, to say that this title is my best attempt to get at the message of Colossians. And Christianity is, this is the message of Colossians Christianity is not primarily about what we do. Christianity is primarily about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Okay? So Christianity is not primarily about what we do, it's fundamentally about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Let me make that a little bit more concrete. Um, so, do you know what's radical? Do you know what crazy love is? Do you know how to join the irresistible revolution that I can't say? By the way, I'm quoting recent Christian bestsellers, if you didn't know that. Um, (laughs) Radical, crazy love that causes an irresistible revolution is not some new formula to a better you and me. It's leaning more fully into Jesus. And that's what Colossians is talking about, okay? It's seeing Jesus as he really is, the creator and reconciler of all things. And that's what we're going to explore in this passage, which is exciting. And this is the Jesus that Paul, the author of Colossians, um, through the inspiration of God, is thrusting before our sight tonight. This is the Jesus that he's declaring. Um, he's practically breaking out into singing. Um, a lot of your Bibles will separate verses 15 on into some sort of like lyrics. There's a sense in which he is so excited, so filled with wonder about Jesus and who Jesus really is. And how Jesus is what everything, what all things are about, that he breaks into song. So the letter's introduction is over. We've, we've gone through the initial sort of who's the author. We've gone through the initial prayer and then the Thanksgiving, and he is overflowing into the meat, the main point of this letter, which is describing Jesus and unpacking who this Jesus is and what it means for our lives. And that's what we're going to start doing today uh, tonight. So with that in mind, I mean, now that you're licking your chops, um, why don't you turn to your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1, if you have one. If you don't, check out this awesome bulletin, inside right. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess that we do have a, you know that squiggly mark on the front? I photocopied a hair. Yes, I did. I'm confessing it. <laughs> Valentine's Day treat for you guys. Thank you. It's photocopied, so you can't be that grossed out. It's on the front cover. Uh, that's not that's not a scratch. That is that it is hair, and I'm not sure it's mine. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's stay up the readings. Colossians chapter one verses fifteen to Okay, for those of you still looking in your Bible, Colossians is in the New Testament, somewhere between Philippians and First Thessalonians. If you go past Romans and then you, if you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Okay. Reading out the English Standard Version translation, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in all the fullness, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you all, literally, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Friends, these are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I'm thankful that we're out and about here attending to your word. I pray, Father, that you would use it to speak to us wherever we are, uh, mentally and spiritually, wherever we are, um, socially, wherever we are romantically. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would use this time to really um, to comfort us and to challenge us, to show us who Jesus is and to get us excited about what he's doing in our lives. And I pray, Father, that that would happen. And I pray that you'd help me to be clear about that. And I pray that your scripture would just soak in. This is a wonderful passage. And I pray, Father, that you would teach it to our hearts so that we could sing it, just like Paul all the time. We ask these things in your son's name. Right. You can be seated. Have you ever done something day in and day out that you felt was absolutely, completely meaningless? Okay. For some of you, it was like a former job, right? Where you got paid to sit around, but you couldn't do your homework. So you were just like waiting for the phone call that never happened. For others of you, that's what being a student feels like as you post pointless discussion question answers onto an online forum, or maybe you're in the lab laboring, trying to make a clear liquid into a bubbly clear liquid. Um, <laughs> and, you're like, and you're asking, what's the point? For me, I had a really deep experience of this, and it was the summer between my sophomore and my junior year of college. Uh, I worked at Wendy's. A restaurant. Now, no, to be honest, I liked a lot of the job before we go there. I made friends with other burger architects, um, <laughs> that means I flipped burgers um, and they had a seniority system by the way for those who use the cash register and apparently my high school education and college, partial college education was better put to use in the grill so that's what happened with me so what I did like during the day of my shifts, was I entertained myself by secretly popping nuggets chicken nuggets and by taking kid sized frosty shots just all the time. Uh, until I got like really raging, freezing headaches. So, and I even perfected what combination of soda would make the perfect suicide. Because you, you know, you get your unlimited access to these things. I um, uh, Here, just a word to a wise from my experience to your future experience root beer and Diet Coke just will mess up any combination. <laughs> if you had learned that at the pool growing up, then now you know. Okay. But most days actually when I worked at Wendy's, I had the opening shift for a restaurant that only served lunch and dinner. So this means that when I got there, what my first duty to do was to go outside the parking lot and start scrubbing the drive through Not the windows, not the sign, but the pavement. (laughs) The road that the cars drove on. Okay, Um, yes you heard me right, I was scrubbing asphalt. (laughs) every morning, for a whole summer. And I think you need to get this picture firmly in mind of me scrubbing asphalt an entire summer. And this is what it looks like. It was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, roughly 2001. Uh, It was June. It was nearly 100 degrees outside, and sticky humid, not like here. And there I was in my navy blue uniform, which I never washed, which is totally disgusting. <laughs> the whole summer sweat, not, not just that. Um, I had my same curly poofy hair, but at shoulder length, um, and I had cornrows at one point. There's just really no way or time to explain why I had cornrows. I just did. Yeah, I, don't know how I had a lot of times And a do rag. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I can go to that chapter of my life. Maybe we should just talk about that later. Um, so there I was. Um, picture, picture this. Uh, similar deal, longer hair, cornrows. And I was equipped to clean these oil-stained asphalt the, the drive through pavement with a push broom and a plastic watering can full of, like, diluted cleaning solution. So... In the heat of the day, there I was with a plastic watering can pouring out watery suds onto oil spots in the drive through and brushing, basically just brushing the oil further into the asphalt because <laughs> <laughs> there was just no hope of actually getting anything accomplished. Uh, um, so no amount of intense effort or scrubbing with soapy water can actually really clean years-old stains off of asphalt. And so, not only did this job seem pointless, like, anyone really cares in their car if there are, like, oil spots on the drive-thru. That's what they're really caring about when they go into a fast food restaurant, the drive-thru. It also was meaningless, because I couldn't even actually accomplish the task that they had given me, that I did every single morning, at 7 to 8 p.m. Or a.m. excuse me. Cleaning the pavement on the drive-thru window um, was just, frankly, uh, some of the worst moments for me in my entire life. <laughs> I had become a Christian earlier that year. Uh, I didn't be- grow up Christian. I became a Christian in college. And in the middle of doing this task, uh, this hard, meaningless scrubbing, I had some serious doubts about my life. I mean, not just like, what was I doing cleaning asphalt with a push broom in uh, a watering can. Uh, not just like, why was I at Wendy's uh, working fast food. Um, or not even just... I think it was even just bigger. It was like, what am I doing with my life? Um, and even more, what am, am I? What is this whole Christianity thing about? Uh, after all, that was kind of what had gotten me there. I, I had gone to a summer uh, camp, Christian summer camp slash project, that had brought me uh, to Myrtle Beach and to Wendy's and that fun establishment of working. So, and I remember thinking, like, is this whole Jesus thing really? Do I really believe this? There I was, pushed through the push broom. Is it true? Am I just looking for patterns in the static? What in the world am I doing here with a plastic watering can, a push broom, and an unseen distant Lord? I wish that summer that I had read, that I had stewed in this passage. I wish that summer that I had looked at 1 Corinthians 15-23 through and really meditated on it to see what Was going on. Because although I'm not a Colossian and neither are you, this passage was speaking and is speaking to me. And my guess is that in this room it's speaking to all of us in some way. Whether you feel like you're push-brooming years-old stains off of asphalt for a living, or you find yourself wrestling with doubts in the dark. Wondering when you wake up about whether this universe has any meaning and whether you really need Jesus to be anything but nice and dead. Commentator Kent Hughes calls this passage of scripture, this piece of 1 Corinthians 1, the most closely reasoned presentation of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. It's a bold claim. And what he means by that is that Jesus in this passage is Lord of all, or he's Lord of nothing. He's Lord of all, or he's Lord of nothing. In other words, Jesus has always been what everything is about. And his self-sacrificial love is in the words of Bono. It's going to cause all the colors to bleed into one. That's a picture of reconciliation. Jesus is the creator and the peacemaker. He is the creator and the reconciler simply Colossians 1 verses 15 through 23 says this Jesus makes something out of nothing and gladness out of badness and we've got to we've got to believe this every day so Jesus is making something out of nothing and gladness out of badness and we've just got to believe this every day that's sort of the point of this passage and look let me break down this passage words. the passage speaks to us in two parts it speaks into our doubts and lifts up our hearts in two ways Verses fifteen through seventeen, we take a look. Uh, we see that Jesus makes something out of nothing. That is, Jesus is the Lord of creation for us, for everyone, for all. And then in verses eighteen through twenty-three, we see that Jesus makes gladness out of badness. That is, Jesus is the Lord of reconciliation for those who believe. Okay, and I'm going to define some of these terms. So if you're lost in reconciliation, join the club, and we'll figure that out. Okay, together. Um, so in other words, verses 15 through 17 tells us there's a meaning in all things, there's a meaning in everything, okay, so, and it tells us what that meaning is. And then verses 18 through 23 tell us that there's a peace for everything that comes to the cross of Christ, okay, so there's a meaning to everything, and then there is a peace that comes to the cross of Christ. These are some huge claims, again, and really this is actually one of the better, like, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the gospel message, what is the central message of Christianity about? This passage is one of the better sections of Scripture about that. And I just pray I can do justice to it. Uh, But let's look at this closely and see what what the bold claims are. So let's start with verses 15 through 17, which is about creation, okay? So, 15 through 17, take a look at it. So, the minute I use the word creation, in about verses 15 through 17, I cross some sort of mental line in a lot of your people's souls. Okay, Creation. Some of you who grew up in church, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I'm fine with that term creation. But others of you, whether you grew up in the church or not, creation's a very loaded word. It's a, it's a cultural warfare word, right? After all, this is the big raging debate about creation and evolution, and this involves the supposed age of the earth in public school textbooks and people with picket signs and people marching on Washington and people marching from Washington. This is a big deal. And I'm not going to step into that cultural war. I'm sorry. And here's why. I don't agree with the way that the battle lines are drawn on either side. I just don't. And so to sit there and step into it, I'd have to sit there and dissect the cultural war, and then we would lose, the, lose some of the Bible, which is really not my goal. Okay? So, but let me tell you a few things about what this passage is about. Um, I think Paul's saying here, and this is what I mean by creation when I summarize what he's saying, that the word creation is actually about something deeper than, than the cultural warfare. It's not something more essential than that. About, more essential than school curriculum. Okay, or curricula. By calling Jesus the image of the invisible God, by calling Jesus the firstborn of all creation... Paul's asserting something that every, he's asserting that everything that is, everything that has being, everything that exists, all things invisible and visible, everything on earth as in heaven as well, all of these things have meaning. All of these things have purpose. Everything was made, everything's held together, everything has a purpose or an end. And the maker and sustainer and end of all of these things is Jesus Christ. That's his argument, okay? The same Jesus Christ, that same Jewish person who lived 2,000 years ago, kicked off his sandals and died on a cross. Same guy. Let's look at each of these individual claims one by one, okay? Look, so first what I'm saying is that the passage is saying there's a meaning behind everything that exists. Right? There's a meaning behind everything that exists. And this is what Paul's driving at in verses 15 and 16 when he calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. Why? For by him all things were created. He's the image of the invisible God because everything's created by him. Or in him, literally. Jesus makes the invisible spirit of God visible. How does he do that? Jesus does it by becoming a man. right? So he's visible in that sense. God's visible by becoming a man. But also further, he makes God visible by the act of creation. And that's what the focus of verses fifteen through seventeen are about. God is visible in creation because creation reflects God's beauty, God's goodness, and God's truth. And those—that is what God is all about: is beauty, goodness, and truth. So, whether we know it or not, many of us take the universe—the universe's beauty, goodness, and truth—for granted. Okay, this is where it gets sort of application driven. So, I've given you some lofty ideas, but let me talk about your life and talk about my life for a second. We live our lives for these things. We live these, our lives for beauty, goodness, and truth, whether we know it or not. These things influence how you study, why you study, maybe even what you study, and certainly what you plan to do with your life. How? Something good or beautiful or true helped you pick a major. It just did. Okay. If you're undecided, I'm sorry. <laughs> You'll find it out. So if you're a nursing major, or an English major, or a business major, or a computer science major, or a biology major, or every other major in the man, my major, I saw a hand back there. Um, look, you know, whatever you are, you're pursuing the good, the true, and the beautiful in some way. You're looking at creation and saying, where can I make my mark? What is the mark of creation on me? And I just want to say this, and I think this is such sort of taken for granted, so assumed that it's hard for us to get outside of that perspective, whether or not you believe in Christianity. We would look very differently if we didn't believe that the world had a rhyme or reason or rhythm. Wouldn't we? We would look totally differently. I doubt any of us would get out of bed in the morning. And we would also, the way that we look around the world, says, look, the sun, the mountains, the architecture, the city planning, everything that's around us, we see that it has a purpose, we see that it has an order, we see it has a structure, a goodness, a truth, and a beauty. And they reflect all of these things God. And look, you think maybe maybe you say, okay, well that's awesome. You're a preacher and you're up here talking about the Bible, but let me just point to somebody who's way off uh, the Christian radar, just to give you a little bit of uh, perspective. And the guy's name is Albert Einstein.
1: He made some amazing
0: advances in science. You know how his theory of ge- gen- his theory of general relativity. I can't even say it because I don't understand it. Um, the, his theories about how the universe, how the physical universe worked. Assumed truth and goodness and beauty in the universe. Listen to what he says. It's his own words. The only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. The only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. And he, all of his discoveries, he thought about in a room with no windows. And they were later proved by people with awesome telescopes. Do you get that? That he assumed that the universe was one way, and it was proven by data. But there are many of us here, and, or some of us here, and many in our culture at large, who think that we're imposing meaning on things. Even Einstein maybe is imposing meaning on things. That really, things are only shaped by meaninglessness, by randomness. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yes, that's William Shakespeare beautifully put into the word, into the mouth of Macbeth. But I have yet to see someone actually live consistently out of that. I know a lot of people, and I lived like that for a lot of my life. And I promise you, I couldn't live consistently. And here's why. What would it even look like to live as if things were meaningless? As if things had no purpose and order and structure? I had a professor in graduate school that actually tried to sort of speculate about this. He knew a guy named Richard Gordy, like personally. Richard is a big time philosopher Um, who was at Stanford, and they sort of swapped. He was the head of the, uh, a chair of the philosophy department, and then Richard Gordy came in, and they had this, like, epic conversation because this guy has, like, an epic conversation with everybody famous in world history. So his class was amazing and interesting. But um, he said this to him. He said, what do you, like, how do you live, Richard? How do you live? If you believe what you're teaching, if you believe what you're writing, how do you live? He said, what do you do? What, what's to make you live a life of love versus going and eating cabbage in a corner? And really, that was his image. This was Professor McKenzie's image, just eating cabbage in a corner. That's what meaninglessness looked like. But I would even think that cabbage in a corner has hope for meaning. So I don't even think that's accurate and fair. Okay? So, and really, like, whether you believe in a universe full of meaning, or one that has no meaning, a universe with no truth, no beauty, no goodness, really comes down to what you believe about creation is a belief. Okay? It's a belief. And here's the important belief. Do you, do I believe that Jesus is God? Because the meaning that we assume in order to live a meaningful life must come from somewhere. And according to these verses, that somewhere that meaning comes from firstborn over all creation. Will we believe, verse 19, I'm sorry, I'm getting off my outline, it's okay. Uh, Will we believe, verse 19, that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus? We must. Because the fullness of God, it's the deity of God, it's the power and the being of God that makes the universe something and not nothing. Do you get that? That's the, the divine fullness holds the universe together in the midst of dark matter and entropy, in the midst of decay and corruption. But let me ask you a question, for us, for all of us. Why does it feel so weird, so uncomfortable, to believe that Jesus is the source, the power, and the purpose of everything? That Jesus is that big? That the the God who became a baby in a manger can be that big? I mean, many of us can buy into a meaningful world. Like, so maybe you thought the last 10 minutes were just sort of pointless. You're like, yeah, sure, of course I believe in a meaningful world. But the minute I sort of said, oh, by the way, the Bible asks us to connect this meaning to a Jewish guy who lived 2,000 years ago, that's when some of you were like, thanks, but no thanks. Believing in a meaningful creation, even a creator, is not enough. And I think that's what verses 18 through 23 are driving. Believing in a creator even a meaningful Christian, is not enough. Because we have problems that run deeper than, how, than loving life and loving the world and loving the universe. And this is where the passage speaks to us. By nature, we're alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And we need Jesus to offer peace for our hostilities and reconciliation for alienation. And everyone just flinched when we heard the word evil. Evil. You and I are evil. Sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, when's the last time that you went and tortured puppies or pushed little kids into the street, into ongoing traffic? Isn't that what evil is? I mean, right? But the Bible invites us to go beyond our easy, black and white, cultural definitions of good and evil, okay? And the Bible says, if you read it, It will pull up the floorboards of your heart and you will see the secret frustrations and the the twisted desires that lurk therein. Before long, we come across what Paul means by evil and what the Bible means by sin. And it's really this, centering your life on yourself and not on other people and not on God. And of course, this self-centeredness leads to alienation, right? because of course it separates us from God and from other people I, I'm just going to give you a little that's the that's what the Bible says but let me give you a very real life scenario my daughter Carol uh, who is 17 to 18 months um, she, she about like maybe a couple months ago she started to grunt about everything <laughs> ah, 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 which is really sweet and cute but then you start to realize that really what she's doing is saying I want that I want this, I want that for myself, I want that for myself, I want that for myself. And really, the point isn't about Carol, the point is about me. Because what I started to realize was that, if, that I'm just very good at hiding my grunts. That I that go throughout my day of my life and I go, I want that, and I want that for myself, and I want that for myself, and that for myself. And I'm actually big enough and strong enough that I don't have to ask mom and dad for it anymore. And that's what being self-centered looks like. And at first blush, this all seems very unfair. Because everyone's born a bit selfish, does that mean that everyone's born evil? That's what verse 21 says. I think that's what Paul's saying. And then he, then, he, God, asks, look, he's asking you to go against the grain of who we are and be unselfish and love God and love other people. And that's hard. And I love the way that poet-theologian Frederick Buechner puts it. Of course I have to go to my man crush, my bromance man Extraordinaire, Frederick Buechner. God is asking us this: to love our neighbors. When an intelligent fourth grader could tell you that the way to get ahead in this world is to beat your neighbors to the draw every chance you get, He's asking us to love our neighbors when an intelligent fourth grader is basically could tell you that the way to get ahead in the world is to beat your neighbors to your draw to the draw every chance they get. Do you get that? God is really asking us this for our own good, though. Okay? So we don't self-destruct. And I'm going to prove this in a second. But let me go back to Man, because he's just so brilliant and he's got a wonderful way of putting things. Paul's passionate assertion is this, that in the long run, it's such worldly wisdom as the intelligent fourth graders that is foolish. And the sublime foolishness of God that is ultimately wise. What a wonderful way of putting things. It's that reversal of expectation. So if you're offended, good. That's exactly the point. But maybe you're not convinced... Maybe you just doubt that self-centeredness is really the problem. And Paul is just plain out of line and mean when he calls us evil. What's his deal? Paul, honestly. The thornier side can't be that sharp. In his 2000, but let me me actually point you to uh, someone else. Again, in his 2005 graduation address to Kenyon College, a guy named David Foster Wallace, an author, a contemporary author, describes just what Paul is saying. He would disagree with us that Paul's being mean and out of line. Listen to Wallace, a guy who's a contemporary famous writer who is no friend of Christianity. Listen to what he says to college students. If you live for yourself or for something you want, your life will blow up. If you live for yourself or something you want, your life will blow up. Let me quote him. It's a paraphrase. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. Again, this guy's not a Christian. Not even, probably religious. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only thing we get is what to worship. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Pretty much anything else but God that you choose to worship will eat you alive. Again, the guy's not a practicing churchgoer. Okay, He keeps going. If you worship money and things, and again, plus to yourself, you'll never have enough. If you worship your own body, your beauty, your sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship your power, you'll feel weak and afraid. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, on the verge of being found out. That's a really bold graduation speech. Um, What you probably don't know about David Foster Wallace is that the center of Wallace's life was being seen as smart. Actually, the downfall of most of his books and most of his friendships was the fact that he was in intellectual competition with everyone. I mean, his book, Infinite Justice, is over 1,000 pages, and it has almost 1,000, if not more, footnotes. It's a novel, by the way. And guess what? Wallace's desire to be seen as smart ate him alive. Just a few years after the Kenyon commencement address in 2005, in 2008, at the age of 46, David Foster Wallace committed suicide. So what's the solution? How do we escape being eaten alive by ourselves and by the different pieces of our self-image we're constantly worshiping? Do we just try harder to love other people and God? Is it just a matter of willpower and self-effort? The short answer is no. But the longer answer is in verses 18 through 22 Jesus had to become the image of the invisible God and lay down his body of flesh by death to be the firstborn resurrected from the dead so that we can escape self destruction, so that we don't explode. The reconciliation, that other orientation that we so desperately need in our lives, is given to us by Jesus. Through his life, for our life. Through his death, for our death. And that's what the passage is all about. And that's what the gospel, the central message of Christianity, is all about. All we must do, according to verse 23, is to believe that Jesus lived and died for us. And we are holy and blameless and above reproach. That's an awesome promise. Your shame, those years stained spots that are on the asphalt of your heart... There's no push broom and no cleaning solution aside from the blood of Christ that can scrub those clean. Do you see, if we only need to try harder to love God and other people, God's love through Jesus' death is like just another empty Valentine's Day form of love. If we weren't headed for self-destruction and death by our self-centeredness, Jesus' death would have been needless there wouldn't have been need for him to die for our death and to live for our life. I love the way that theologian Roger Nicole, he gives us a wonderful analogy or illustration, which is what I'm always looking for, Okay, is an analogy or illustration. Okay? And it's really beautiful. He says this, if we save ourselves from self-absorption and we didn't need saving anyway, it would look a lot like your house was burning down and you had safely left your house. And I came to you and said, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into the fiery house and died. Okay? And what would you say about me? You would say, what an idiot. <laughs> I was safe. Okay? But if you were still in the burning house and I said, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran to the fiery house and I died in the process of saving you. You would say, behold, how he loved me. So, this is the imagery at work in verses 21 and 22. If you can reconcile yourself to God, Jesus' death is not loving, it's stupid. If, however, you're alienated and dying and unable to save yourself due to evil, Jesus' death will mean everything to you. <laughs> Do you get that? Let me end. Okay? I just want to end with a few surprising applications. First of all, Verse 20. And this is what John Stone says, "A guy in RUF. Jesus died to save the trees. Okay, there's a sense in which you have to take everything John Stone says and divide it by four, and it actually makes sense. But what he's saying is that Jesus didn't just die for you. This isn't a personal love letter, perfect for Valentine's Day, between you and me and, and God's just talking to us. The you of Colossians is a you all. It's a you plural. And he's talking to all of us. He's trying to say, look, salvation, reconciliation happens as a people. happens as a community, and it's in community and is for community that we're saved. And then also, furthermore, it's actually so that he can die for the birds and the trees and the whole world to create too. He's making a new creation for his people. That's what this is about. And I think the second surprising the second surprising application is this. Verse 23. Faith, the decision to believe in Jesus, the Lord of creation and the Lord of salvation, faith is not a one-time deal. It's not a hit-and-run spiritual accident. It's not a desperate one-night stand. It's an everyday practice. Faith happens every moment of every day. And I have a quote, but I'm going to skip it, because I really think the point is made. That there's something that I started to think about that summer at Wendy's when I was scrubbing asphalt for a living. And it was this. In the midst of my doubts, I had to face those doubts. And I had to believe in Jesus in the midst of my doubts. Every day. Every moment. And that's what walking in Christian life looks like. A faith that's stable stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel requires believing not in my moment-by-moment ability to believe, but believing in Jesus Christ and His person and His word. So I don't have faith in my faith. I have faith Jesus. He has charged everything with God's grandeur. And he's reconciling all things, even me and my selfishness. even me and my selfishness by the blood of his cross. Would you pray with me? Father, um, I pray that you would help put some of those thoughts and those categories into our heads and our hearts. That is hard stuff. It's hard to be told you're evil, it's hard to be told that Jesus is creating everything, even though he also came as some Jewish guy 2,000 years ago. I pray that in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of, uh, of our faith, in the midst of everything that's going on inside of us, that we would turn to something outside of us and we would turn to your son, Jesus Christ. That we would turn with faith and that we would lean into him, wherever we are with that. Whether it's the 7 trillionth time that we've done it, maybe it's the 400th time we've done it today. But I pray, um, even for the people that it might be the first time for, that this would be an opportunity to do that. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what this reconciliation is all about. And that you would help us to understand uh, the beautiful gift, the holiness, the being above reproach that you give us in Jesus. Make us blameless pure as snow. In your Son's name, amen.